the, the focus that we really looked at last week, Jesus' emphasis for the majority of that chapter, is just the subject of righteousness. How important it is, and, and, and truthfully, how we cannot achieve righteousness in our own strength. Uh, there, there's, there's no way to get there through self-righteousness. And so that right, true righteousness only comes by way uh, of Jesus and, and faith. And so uh, today, we're going to be getting into chapter 6, and uh, we're going to read the first few verses there. And um, he, he, he moves the subject slightly. And, uh, and so he's, he went from talking about righteousness and how there is no way to righteousness but for Jesus. Uh, and now he's talking about uh, practicing our righteousness uh, or, or proving our righteousness, our righteousness showing up for the world to see. And uh, another word for that would be justification. And so he is talking about justification in these verses. And, and the point that he's making, again, is true justification is not something that we ourselves can achieve. And so there, there's no self-justification in, in light of what God's done for us. There's the, the gift of justification through the person of Christ. And so that's, the, that's kind of the overarching theme here. And so we're going to look at Matthew 6, and uh, we're going to go verses 1 through 8, and then we'll talk about that. And then there's a couple more verses we'll, we'll get to in a minute. But uh, this is what it says, starting in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness for men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets so that they, uh, they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they will have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, uh, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may uh, be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Um, I, 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 reading these verses reminds me of a parable that Jesus told. And you find this parable in Luke 18. And, and so I wanted to read that really quick before we kind of talk about this, because I think it gives some, some good context so this is Luke 18, just 9 through 14, um, this parable Jesus told. Jesus told this parable about some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Uh, some translations talk about this idea of, 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 of someone who is a publican, and so just another word for tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like these people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I, pray, I pay tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to this. Uh, man went to his house justified. This man went to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
the, uh, the word justified stands out there. And uh, the, the person who was trying to justify himself and uh, was exerting energy and putting on a show to justify himself was not. And the person who was justified was probably the person that we would all say uh, is disqualified from being justified. He is a sinner. He is not a good person. He knows that. He's, he's saying, God, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, at all, um, I'm not, I, I can't even receive your goodness. I'm not deserving. I'm, I'm awful. And so he's saying, God, have mercy on me. So this, this, this idea is, uh, when you read both of these sections of Scripture, you, you, it's easy to kind of reduce it to um, God talking about the, 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 the badness of hypocrisy and just reduce it to kind of an outward boasting of hypocrisy. Don't, uh, don't go around bragging about how holy you are because you're wrong. So it's easy to kind of reduce it to that. And then uh, no one reads this, this parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector and relates to the Pharisee. No, no one reads that and says, ah, that's me. And, uh, and that's probably unfortunate because I think that's really the, the purpose of this parable and the purpose of this conversation in Matthew 6. Um, I'm going to read this first sentence again in the parable. Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. If I'm honest, and, and I, I encourage you to join me in this honesty, um, have I been the target of judgment and criticism? from other sanctimonious, self-righteous people? Oh, yes. Have I been in the Pharisee's shoes where I have had so much judgment and criticism of other people that I'm pretty convinced that I'm better than? Unfortunately, yes. More often than I'd like to admit. I'm extremely guilty of this. If you read this and say, okay, I would never be like the Pharisee who, who is proclaiming and exclaiming he's better than the tax collector. But in that moment, even thinking that or saying that, we're positioning ourselves to be better than the Pharisee. Well, I'm better than, I wouldn't do that. I'm better than he is. So this is not, these, these scriptures are not Jesus um, uh, targeting this, uh, this anti-self-righteousness position where we should be, a, a, we should be uh, infuriated by others' self-righteousness. What he's doing is he's exposing, illuminating, showing us that we're guilty of self-righteousness and self-justification ourselves. We all are. We're, we're all guilty of this, and so he is showing us, he's exposing the self-righteousness, the self-justification that exists within all of us, and he's doing something even more important than that. He's, he goes into why that happens, where that comes from, and that's our conversation today, the reason behind that desire to self-justify. So consider the motivations that he mentions, and uh, these are key, and I want to I make note of these. And so he, he, he goes, he, all these are kind of strung together, different areas and ap- opportunities that we have to kind of prove how holy and righteous in Christian we are. Beware practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Uh, when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that you may be honored by them. 
When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by people. When you are praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard by people. And so the motivations that we hear illuminated by, by Jesus himself are these motivations to be noticed, to be honored, to be seen, to be heard. He talks about different contexts. Uh, he talks about giving to the poor. That, that could be anything, serving, helping, giving aid to, uh, taking selfies as we volunteer in whatever position that is, making sure that the world knows, hashtag uh, blessed to be a blessing. And uh, it's like letting everybody know that uh, we are really good people. Uh, or or we, we get preachy. We make sure that everybody knows that they're wrong and we're right. And uh, we make these kind of declarative statements uh, even through social, social media. If, if, I, if you think any other way than this, we can't be friends. That's a good one. And so uh, to be noticed, to be honored, I, I think we underestimate how big these motivations are on the inside of us. I, I think that we underestimate the, the void that is within all of us that craves these things. It's not even just that we want these things, we need them. We feel like we need to establish and define personal significance, meaning, importance. We need to be seen. We need to be heard. We need to be discovered. Uh, Whoever invented YouTube invented YouTube many years ago for the sole purpose of this. We all want to be a celebrity. And instead of someone watching somebody else who's probably a little bit more talented than we are, you should be watching me. And now, through social media and all these different channels, and you've got, you've got uh, Instagram, you've got you know, Facebook, you've got uh, whatever the ones the kids are using nowadays. What's, the, uh, what's the, the video one? TikTok. That's a good one. And so, uh, and so it's like, I've got 75 million followers. What do you do? <laughs> do this. <laughs> Put it on TikTok. This place is gonna blow up, man. Um, or, or, or you have people who they all they do is uh, make silly faces while they watch other people's content, and then they get more video views than the people that made the content in the first place. Like, mm-hmm. and so uh, it's it's awesome. It's great. It shows you how great uh, how how much we need Jesus. Anyway, so. Um, I think we, now you're thinking to yourself, I have not, I'm not even on TikTok, I'm not, I, I have not even done any videos ever, uh, but that's a silly version of what we do in our everyday lives anyway, and so we want our, our, we would love to hear you're doing great from our boss. We would love to have a pay raise to recognize that we're doing great. We love getting the A on top of our paper in school. We love recognition. We love people noticing us. We love people hearing us. We love this, this phrase right here. You know what? You're right. It's like Christmas morning when we hear that. It's like that is the best thing to hear. You know what we hate hearing? I disagree with you. Oh my gosh, it's the end of the world. We all crave this. We need this. We need importance. We desperately want to be seen, noticed, recognized, and respected. We want our lives to count. So, so much of our lives is built around this premise. There is so much effort and time and, 
in uh, thought and energy that goes into trying to gain the things that Jesus is talking about. And he's saying that people, people go out and they try to live their Christian life grandstanding to get these things in return. So within the context of Jesus' examples, he's pointing out all the places that we go to look for these things that we crave. We look to other people to fulfill us, to fill the void. We look to this world. We look to marriage and kids and family and friends and bosses and coworkers for attention and affirmation. And we, we even look to strangers. I, I cannot tell you, I'm so guilty of this, and I repent before you and, and God above, that uh, when I hold a door open for people, which I'm old-fashioned and I always do, uh, I, I hold a door open for people, and if they don't say thank you, I want to drag them back out of that store and close the door because they should be punished for not saying thank you to their, their guardian angel, Chris Stapleton, not the country singer. When I let someone in in traffic, if I don't see a little hand go up, I'm like, oh, I'm going to cut you off now. I'm taking it back. That, that's from strangers. Why does that matter? I don't know, but it does. This world insists upon this strategy of deriving importance, meaning, significance, fulfillment from others. It preaches it. It proselytizes it, it demands it, it teaches it, it instructs it, it emulates it. it. It is the way the world works. The system of this world is you feel deficient always. You're, you're, you need to go to other people to fulfill that void. Those are the instructions that we're given. We're, we're individuals living these individualistic lives, performing for the approval of other people, even strangers. We become ultra-critical of human beings, of, of other people, of relationships, because if they don't fulfill the demand that we put on them, now we're in trouble. If you don't give me what I need, I'm going to feel lack, and that makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like that. And so it puts a demand and a pressure on relationships that is not fair. We're not free to just love and accept the person where they are because it doesn't fulfill me. The truth is, I've lived in church my whole life. I've been a part of church since I can remember. Growing up, I've been in different denominations and different places, but I've been in church my whole life. And I've grown up around this idea and sensibility. I've heard it preached uh, week after week after week. That we are here to fix people. To, in, in, in some terms, they, this is, it was most recently in my church life, it was put this way. We're here to lift people. What does lift people mean? Fix them. Fix them. So what, where is that coming from? Is that a, a call of God? Chris, I have called you to go into the world and not just catch the fish, but clean them too. I've called you to fix people. Where is that call in the Bible? It's not there, but it feels good because truthfully, I'm so insecure and I'm so fragile that if, if I cannot feel like I'm successful and meaningful as a Christian person, unless you stop doing the nonsense you're doing. So I'm not trying to save you, I'm trying to save me.
Why do we demand conformity? Why do we demand people to change so that we can feel better about ourselves? It has nothing to do with care and concern for them. This runs deep. That's why Jesus is taking time in this most important sermon to address it. He's, he's not talking about because it it's annoying. You know, hypocrites are annoying. They're bad press for us Christians. We're all hypocrites. That's not going to change. You're, you're going to be a hypocrite until you go home to be with Jesus. It's gonna, that's the, hypocrite just means you don't live out what you believe. We believe in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a Savior who took all of our sin. We believe that before God we are sinless. Are you sinless? <laughs> no. So there is an air of hypocrisy in everything. Is that the point? No. What he's asking us to do is look beyond ourselves for justification, for proof, for living it out, living in the tension of this search for these things, fulfillment in these things, uh, gaining to be seen, to be respected, to be heard, to be honored, living in, the, in, in, the, in the, this, this mode of trying to get that from other people creates a tension within us. It creates listlessness within us because it's never, ever enough. It creates frustration in us with ourselves and other people. It it creates despair within us because at some point you're like, I've done everything I know to do and I still don't feel satisfied. I still feel empty. I I still feel, I don't, I get no respect, to quote Rodney Dangerfield. And about three of you know who that is. So what does Jesus do with this frustration? He, he segues as only he can do. He's talking about it, and he's talking about it with an icon that we can understand and that we don't want to identify with, but he makes us. No one wants to identify with the Pharisee, but he forces us to. The worst people, the, the most annoying people as a Christian are the self-righteous, the Pharisee. And he, he confronts us. He, he puts them in front of us as if it's a mirror and says, you do this too. And then he, then he talks about the antidote. The other way, the other path. And the way he does that is he turns our attention to prayer. He, he just seamlessly starts talking about prayer. And at first he talks about praying wrong. He says, don't do this. Don't pray like this. Don't pray like just repeating yourself over and over and over. Uh, as the Gentiles do. And he, he goes on to say that the purpose of prayer is not, uh, is not telling God stuff he doesn't know. He says he already knows what you need before you ask. So we're not bringing God up to speed. God, I know you were reclining watching Netflix. Uh, I'm just going to catch you up. Do you know that this guy's being a bonehead? Can you please fix him for me? He talks about how not to pray, but then he talks about how to pray. And this, this is, we all know these verses. He gets into the Lord's Prayer. It's what we call it, the Lord's Prayer. And so I'm going to read to you just the first, uh, verses 9 through 13. It's where he, he breaks it out. So this is, this, is, this is instructions on how to pray. Pray, then, this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us... Uh, this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Um, some people along the way have just said, this is, this is a script. You just kind of, if you're going to pray, just read this, and that's how you do it. So it becomes a working script. But the, the heart, and if, if you read the context here, he's doing something. He's doing something that's more than just the words and more than just the template. He's, he's moving us, our focus, the emphasis off of ourselves onto him. And so if you look at the first verses where he talks about our trying to prove ourselves, practice righteousness, it is, it is we're trying to gain something, we're trying to prove something, this is all earthly, this is all natural. Uh, everything that you read in terms of what that person is doing before other people is, is trying to derive something quite natural and emotional and felt from another human being. So it just, it's our interaction with other humans. And then he says, lift your eyes. Pray to me. It's a contrast as Jesus as our source versus this world as our source, getting what we need from him as opposed to trying to leverage relationships and other people to get what we need from them. It's finding true justification in the same place that we found true righteousness. If you go back to the last chapter, he talks about, listen, you're going to mess up. You're going to drop the ball. In the natural, you are flesh and bone and you fail often. And so the only place to find true righteousness is, is a supernatural source, is in the person, the one person who is righteous. He's doing the same thing with justification. He's saying, you can't justify yourself. This, you're chasing your tail. And he turns our attention to the one place where we find justification. We're looking for something spiritual and eternal in things that are natural and temporal. There's a statement as people are, are, are searching the empty tomb for Jesus as he is re- resurrected. And the angel of the Lord asks the question, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? The living is not going to be where you find dead people. And so that's the same conversation here. You're looking for something supernatural, eternal, and spiritual, something of heaven and you're looking at it in very natural, temporal places. It, it doesn't go there. It doesn't live there. Prayer is meant to be uh, a tool to retune our hearts to the source of everything. To bring us, snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. Oh, no, no, sorry. Can I quote Eminem in church? Is that Okay. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. There is, a, there is a gift that we're given with prayer, and I think prayer is one of those things that has been misinterpreted, misrepresented throughout church history. We, uh, we've coined the phrase, and I love it, prayer warrior, which I think is a little bit of a contradiction in terms, if I'm honest with you. Because prayer is an acknowledgement that I'm not in control. 
prayer is hitting my knees and saying, I can't do this. Now, understand the sentiment to, to be steady and dedicated to prayer. You could be a warrior in that, but that, that's not usually how that's communicated. Prayer is the ultimate acknowledgement of weakness in our humanity. I can't. Truth is, when do we pray? We pray when we've exhausted all other options. I will try to fix a problem for hours, and then suddenly, oh yeah, Jesus. Forgot about you, bro. He, he gives us this gift, and it's meant to retune our hearts to the source. Jesus as our source. He's a source of everything. And, uh, and then, so let me, let, let's just go through the, the Lord's Prayer. And this is us wrapping up here. But uh, let's go through the Lord's Prayer quickly. And let's get to something deeper than just a script for proper prayer before God. Because obviously, God wants us to speak out of our hearts. He's not giving us the words to say. He's giving us something far deeper and more important than that. He starts with this, our Father. I think that's an important thing to point out. Our Father. It's not my, it's not me, it's not I, it's we. Immediately Jesus takes the emphasis off an individual who is trying to get praise from other individuals for themselves I want to be heard, I want to be recognized, I want to be honored, I want to be seen to our. It's collective. He takes the emphasis off just me, and then, and then he, he begins to show us the contrast between that sort of community approach versus just being an individual, living an individualistic life. Who is in heaven? I think he's lifting our eyes to consider he's over all of this. He's above all of this. He's not living in these natural places where we assume fulfillment is and, and answers are and fulfill, uh, all, all the meaning of life is. There, there is a, um, a, a, a term that I've heard thrown around, functional atheist. And the meaning behind that is Christians living thinking, breathing, interacting with their lives as if there is no God. Now, you can ask them and they say, of course there is, and I believe in Him, but the functionality of our lives is interacting and acting as if there is not. And so, we think that, uh, yes, God is just stamping our, our natural lives with approval, but we're living very natural lives when He's calling us to live something way more supernatural, way more spiritual. We're not, we're not natural people trying to have a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a natural experience. Who is in heaven is just a reminder. Listen, let's talk about what, what, what's eternal, what matters. Everything else comes to a pass, but, but not that. Hallowed be your name. He alone is worthy. He alone is righteous. He alone is holy. He alone deserves glory. 
There's no other gods before him. Hallowed be his name, not mine. I am not my own savior, nor are you. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this is a tough one because it has to do with our will, our, our own will. What I want, what I feel that I need and I insist upon is not my will, not my plans, not my script, not my comfort, not my preference. It's yielding to His. Jesus Himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, yours. It's one of the most powerful things ever spoken on this planet. Not my will, yours. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is a very difficult thing to yield to. I had a a conversation uh, with um, a lady in Starbucks. I was in Starbucks. So weird. Never there. (laughs) Uh, And uh, and she was reading a a book of an author that I love, and I just said, "That's that's a great book. And we started talking, and she brought up this term, which I don't think I've ever mentioned here, but deconstruction which is a new hipster term, um, describing, uh, it's got a lot of different thoughts and sentiments to it, and some of them are great. Some of them are just anti-church or community, which is silly because the Bible, it makes it such a key point of our, our existence. But, but anyway, she said, I, I'm okay with deconstruction if, as long as there's reconstruction. And I said, my problem with decon- the word deconstruction is it's too nice of a word. I would say demolition. We, we are not deconstructing anything. We are dying. We are being destroyed. We are being decimated. We find life only through death. Death is ugly. Death is flailing. It is not pretty. It is not something that we run to. It is something that we have to experience. And the only way to find true life, it is no longer I who live. I have to die. The Bible says, I am crucified. In Christ. That is not pretty. That's not desirable. I'm not in control of that. That deconstruction my life. It, I demolitioned. Your kingdom come, your will be done is a reminder of the central focus of our existence. It is Him and it is not I. Give us this day our daily bread. You are my constant source. Nothing else will satisfy my soul. It speaks to a steady diet of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I need the bread of life. I need you always. Daily. Forgive, forgive us our debts as we forgive. We've forgiven our debtors. Living in the constant awareness of the price that was paid to cancel the certificate of death on our own lives, to fulfill the righteousness demanded, to to cancel out our sins, in fact, to be punished for our sins. He became sin so that we could be righteous. Living as forgiven people who are quick to share the grace that we've all received. When we can't forgive somebody else, we've forgotten that we were forgiven. And when we talk about the deservedness of forgiving them, we forget how undeserved we are to be forgiven. It is a grace that is meant to rule and run our lives. 
in the starting point of that, as he says, forgive us our debts, we are forgiven. The starting place is realizing and recognizing. It goes back to the last thing. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. We're constantly reminded with the the fresh smell of fresh-baked bread. We're, We're constantly reminded, I've been forgiven much, therefore I love much. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, I trust you to lead me and guide me and keep my eyes and my heart fixed on you. To not allow me to wander off and make this about me. Choose this day who you will serve. I choose you every single day. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This reminds me of Romans eleven thirty six. For all things are from him, through him, and to him. Yours is the kingdom. That is the source of everything. The kingdom of God, which is eternal. Uh, the power. He, he works all things out for our good. His power works within our lives. He's, that's the way. He, everything's from, through. It's how he, he works within our lives. It's through him. And to him, it says the glory forever. His glory, not mine. This is a beautiful um, prayer that Jesus lays in our laps. And like I said, it's not a script but it is a consideration. And when you dig into what's being said and why it's being said, suddenly our perspective has shifted off of us and just trying to manage and maintain an existence on this planet to eternity and the the God of the universe who has his hand upon us, who loves us, who's intricately involved in every area of our life. He will never leave us or forsake us. He doesn't stray away from us. We don't stray away from him. He's got us. And he promises to work every single thing, good, bad, and ugly, out for our good. I'll close with this. Third John 1 says that we will prosper in all respects. In other words, out here, we will prosper in every arena of life as our souls prosper. We live inside out, not outside in justification is something that god does within us and then it bears the fruit of our lives outside of us so we don't have to prove anything we don't have to show anybody anything i cannot tell you how enslaving it is to live trying to please the people around you i know this from experience because I've lived that way for 45 years and it is a prison sentence because you can't do it they killed Jesus and he was far better than me to say the least to think that people are going to like you because listen if you want to be loved do not help people I could probably be doing something else right now other than pastoring a church. And truthfully, I, could, I would probably be way more liked. But I don't do this for popularity. The Apostle Paul talks about it. He said, if, if, I, if, I wanted, if I wanted to be liked, I wouldn't do this. If I wanted approval, I wouldn't preach the gospel. I'd make this a self-help seminar every Sunday. You can do it, kids. Just turn up the dial. Try a little harder. Here's ten ways to better you. Man, that packs the seats. If you want to thin the herd, 
preach Christ and him crucified, you're going to have to die. You can't do it. There's no getting there from here. You don't have the goods. Not exactly the most... There's not a lot of TikToks with that message. But life is lived inside out. And, and here's the truth. We look for external, temporal, temporary, natural things to fulfill a void that it can't fulfill. We look to our spouse to fulfill a void within us. You complete me. No, they don't. They can't. Christ alone can do that. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. Marriage is a gift. Kids are a gift. Friendship is a gift. Community is a gift. Coworkers is a gift. A job is a gift. But it is not your source. It is that, whatever that is, you name it, fill in the blank, is the recipient of the grace of God that you receive from heaven. You better it as much as it betters you. We are live, meant to live with healthy souls. Our souls prosper, our lives prosper. Jesus began his ministry with this statement. We read this weeks and weeks ago. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what he's saying is, turn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. His instructions here, turn your eyes, lift your head, turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's where you're going to find hope. That's where we find rescue. And that's where we find true life for our souls. We'll prosper as our souls prosper. Jesus has cornered the market on making souls prosper. There's only one place. Have you ever tried to uh, um, buy a third-party connector for your Apple product? They've cornered the market. They got their own weird diggly-doos, and they demand you pay them for those things. Jesus is like Apple. He uses a Mac. I mean, let's be honest. Uh... (laughs) He, he's like Apple in the fact that you can't find third party as much as you try. And the, the beauty of Jesus versus Apple is that he doesn't, he charges you a lot, but he paid the price for you. Only he can fulfill your soul. There's only one stop shop. There's only one source. There's only one place we can go to have our souls prosper in order for the rest of our lives to prosper. It starts here, and then it moves outward. It doesn't start outward and move inward. It starts inward and moves outward. He has done for us. He is for us. All that we could ever hope for, dream of. In him, we have everything that we need.